Welcome to worship. Welcome to the last uh, few days of 2019. Can you believe it? It's almost over. We're glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, I invite you to stop by the Welcome Center out in the lobby. There'll be somebody there to answer your questions. If you have some about the church and can point you where you ought to go next. Speaking of going next, you'll see on the back of the bulletin a list of all the communities. If you're not in one, I would encourage you to uh, seek out a community that you can enjoy fellowship and good teaching with. You'll also note that we have a membership class starting on January 12th. It'll run for three Sunday evenings. And if you're interested in learning more about what we believe as a church or becoming a member, I invite you to come to that as well. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the precious gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is with us and that in him we have new and eternal life. We pray that you would enable us by your spirit to receive your love and grace and then to share your love and grace with those around us, letting our city know that you are a loving and gracious king and that you are calling men and women to yourself. We ask that you would use the gifts we have brought to you to help us proclaim the good news of the kingdom in our neighborhoods, throughout our city, in the West as we plant churches, and in the world as we send out missionaries. So we dedicate these gifts to you. We dedicate ourselves to you so that your blessings may flow as far as the curse is found and that Jesus may be praised. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, You'll find that on page 892 in the Pew Bible. We'll be reading verses 35 to 40 and 63 to 69. Again, John chapter 6. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but, will ra but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is God's word. Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Merry Christmas. My name is Lee Taylor. I work with young adults here at Village 7. It's a blessing to get to be with you guys and uh, bring the word this morning. My wife Becky and I have two little girls. You've seen them running around the hallways probably and screaming and squawking and causing all kinds of trouble. Uh, Stevie Ray is four years old. Ellie Grace will be two in March. And one of the things that I love about having little kids is that they have absolutely no filter, right? They say whatever comes to their mind, and especially, I mean, Ellie right now is starting to talk, and so whatever comes in starts to come out, and it's just, it's hilarious. And recently I stumbled upon a few quotes, a few prayers that children wrote to God. And it's no surprise that they are hilariously honest. And so here are a few of my favorite. This one's from Charles. He says, Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just wanted you to know that, but I'm not just saying that because you're God. (laughs) This one's from Jonathan. He says, if you had not let the dinosaurs go extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing. (laughs) This one's from Susie. She says, dear God, my turtle died. Is she there with you? If so, she likes lettuce. (laughs) And this last one from Raphael, he says, Dear God, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want, except my money or my chess set. (laughs) But I love those. And, and, you know, we're just kind of like that little guy, Raphael, who says that. He says, you know, I'll give you anything you want. Asking God for a genie lamp, even thinking that God would be a genie of sorts. and, And we don't always see our need. We don't always see our need for God. And when we do, sometimes we still have stipulations on what we are willing to sacrifice, what we are willing to offer to give God. In John chapter 6, you can turn back there if you, haven't, if you don't have that open already. Um, Jesus has already performed miracles throughout his ministry thus far. He's performed several miracles. The crowd is beginning to grow. And he knows that many of these followers are there simply for what he can do for them. He'd already fed the 5,000, more like 10,000 or 15,000 people probably. You know, he'd performed these miracles. He's done these amazing things. The crowd is growing and people are there. Many people are there for what he can do for them. And so Jesus in his ministry What he's beginning to do, especially what we'll see in this passage today, is he wants people to decide about him. He's wanting the people to come to some kind of decision about him, not just follow him for what he can do for them, but what do they actually think about him? What is so great about Jesus? Now, everyone here today has probably asked that question, whether you realize it or not. What's so great about Jesus? What's the big deal about this guy, Jesus, that was walking around 2,000 years ago, you know, that we celebrate his birthday once a year? What's so great about this guy? And you might be similar to many of Jesus' followers at this time. 
thinking that Jesus was simply a moral guy, a good teacher. He performed some miracles. He'd done some amazing things. But is he truly good? Do we really need him? Do we need him every day? Well, let's turn to the text and see what's so great about Jesus. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the bread of life. Look at verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and that you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is trying to highlight various dynamics in describing himself as the bread of life. He's trying to kind of paint somewhat of a picture of what he is like, of who he is like, of what he's trying to inaugurate even at this point in his ministry. And primarily, Jesus wants the people, he wants you and I, to rely upon him. He wants us to trust him, to to need him. He knows that we need him. We just don't always realize how much we need him. And that's Jesus' primary point, even just in this, this first section here, is that do we really need him? Have you ever been just truly dehydrated or, or extremely just weak from hunger, like dangerously weak from hunger? Has, anybody ever, has that ever happened to anybody in here? Well, uh, there is a time back when I was 18 years old and... Uh, I went to a concert with a group of my buddies. It was an outdoor concert in July in Tennessee. Okay, so this, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, cold. Let's just say that. Mosquitoes are like birds there. Um, But we were out, it was an outdoor concert. Not only was it an outdoor concert, but it was like a, a festival. And so we were seeing three bands back to back to back. And, you know, being, you know, 18 year old boys at the time, we weren't thinking. So we brought two, I think it was two or three bottles of water for the four of us for this entire day. And you might think, okay, well, it's simple. There was probably vendors there. There were vendors there. You could go and get some water and you'd be fine. And, but this was a general admission and we got there really early and we actually got front row. Okay. So we were like dead front row and it was, you know, three bands back to back to back. And you might be thinking, well, you could just slip out and go to the one of the vendors. But I don't know if you've ever been to a rock concert before. The people there aren't like polite socialites, okay? So if you leave your spot, they're not just parting, you know, the way so that you can get back to your spot. No, it is survival of the fittest. People are jockeying for their positions, trying to hold their spots. And so we stayed in that front row from the time we got there to the last band finishing. It was 12 hours. Yes. (laughs) Now you might be thinking, well, still, your desire for front row was greater than your desire for water. It's probably true, but that doesn't mean that we weren't dehydrated. I think we were legitimately dehydrated. We were just stupid boys, and so we weren't thinking. But I remember that that day, and there was a few times when one of the security guards would see us just kind of getting weak and about to pass out probably, and he would toss us 
a water bottle, and I tell you that water was like sweet nectar. We were cherishing that water. It was taking little sips at a time. Now that was probably the one time in my life where I felt just the greatest physical need for water. I just, I'd never felt that before, you know, completely parched, mouth dry, just longing for that next sip of water. And Jesus is saying, that's how much you need me. You need me like you need your daily needs of water and food. And even earlier in John chapter four, that's what Jesus talks about with the woman at the well, when he says, I have living water. And she's like, you could give me this living water so I don't have to keep coming to the well every day. And he wasn't actually talking about an endless water supply, but that's what he's getting at. He's saying, you need me like you need water. You need me like you need food, like you need your daily bread. And so Jesus is trying to get at this need. And it's an extremely bold statement. If you try to put ourselves back in the first century and think about this, because Jesus is saying to them that they literally can't live without him. They literally can't live without him. And if you don't see Jesus's love and his kindness and his compassion, you're probably going to be extremely infuriated by, you know, his arrogance, what seems to be extreme arrogance. But you got to believe also that this is one of the reasons why the Jews were grumbling in verse 41, if you want to look at that. And especially because what he later goes on to say in verse 44, he says, you can't come or know the Father unless the Father draws you, draws him. So it's not even going to be based off anything that you can do to try to come to me, but it's only going to be based on if the Father draws you. And so these people are probably sitting around there like, who is this guy that thinks that we can't live without him? Thinks that we can't even do anything to come closer to, the God, to, closer to God unless we are drawn by God. But so this doesn't really kind of fully get through to the people at times. So Jesus tries to, to dig even deeper and gives them more intense, more extreme illustration on these same, in the same context. And so look at verse 52 through 57. We didn't read this earlier, but this is kind of building upon what Jesus has already said. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. It's an intense passage right there. So Jesus is not making it, you know, people are confusing and they're confused. And sometimes when, you're, when you confuse people, you try to like, okay, let me try to like explain this like I'm talking to a six-year-old or something. Like you try to dummy it down and make it a little bit more simple, try to get them to understand a little bit more. No, Jesus ratchets it up a little bit higher and let's just make this more intense, more graphic, more extreme. And what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about abiding and consumption. He's saying, you need me. You need a new heart. You, need a, you, need a, you don't just need an attitude adjustment. You need a heart transplant. But what's up with this tough language? Is Jesus talking about cannibalism? <laughs> 
What is up with this? Well, one pastor and theologian, Bruce Milne, writes, he says, Jesus uses the language of consumption. Faith is like eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus himself. Clearly the sacrifice of the cross is in his mind. His broken body and blood poured out on the cross need to be received by faith in Jesus. And that is very similar to the personal act of eating food. So Jesus is saying that you need me. You need, you need everything about me. You need to consume me. And that consuming is that abiding. You have a problem. And I'm the only one that can save you. So what do we do about that? Look back at verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Abiding in Jesus is the key to life because it truly accentuates this trust, this reliance in life itself. This is what Jesus later gets at in John chapter 15, verses four through five, when he talks about you know, the vine and the branches. He says in verse four through five, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's this abiding in Jesus. He's saying, you're longing for me, but you don't know it. You don't realize it. You're longing for me. Jesus is the answer to our issues, to, the, to our minor issues. We, our hearts are idol factories and we're, we're scratching and we're clawing for all these different things. We're longing for, for achievement to try to make ourselves great and have this power and prestige and reputation and want to make our names great. We're longing for things like, like pleasure where we see all these things in the world and we say, man, if I could just have that, that would make me happy. That would fill me up. That would bring me joy. We're longing for things like acceptance where it's safe. If I could just get somebody to love me, that would comfort my heart. That would bring me joy. If I could just get people to like me, then that would fill me up. Jesus is the only answer to all of those longings and those, those longings that we have here on this earth, on this earth. But maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, Lee, I get it. You've proven your point. I think I need Jesus. <laughs> but is he really worth it? Is he really worth it? Well, thanks for asking that question. That's a great question to ask. And that's going to lead right to my next point. Because if we're truly going to understand the greatness of Jesus, we have to see that he is worth the cost. Jesus is worth the cost. Now, it's widely, it was widely understood in you know, in this time, in the first century, but also throughout the, throughout the years up to 2019, that Jesus was not who the people thought the Messiah would be. At this point, they're not really connecting a lot of those dots yet, but even as time goes on, Jesus wasn't really who they thought the Messiah would be. Um, one scholar writes that they were wanting a, a socio-political Messiah who would feed their bellies and liberate their nation. And so he was checking one of those boxes, right? He had just fed 5,000 people. So like, okay, this guy, he might be able to just keep feeding us and giving us our basic needs and doing all these amazing things. But they are also kind of wanting this person to be someone that would overthrow the Roman government, 
liberate them from the oppression. And so they have kind of that in mind when they're following Jesus and, and watching him. But the, before the sermon that he gave, the, the, the crowd was beginning to grow, as I mentioned earlier. But once he started saying things like, you know, you need me like you need food, you know, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And after he's giving this sermon, that's when many people began to leave. And when people start leaving, it becomes that much more alienating to be one of the few people that stay. So Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks, do you want to go away as well? Essentially, are you still with me? Do you still believe? Do you still believe in me? British theologian, missionary, and author Leslie Newbegin writes, to believe is to have been brought to the place where one knows that one has to rely completely on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Where one has to rely completely on Jesus and on Jesus alone. So think about them at this time. This is not Jesus plus being financially prosperous, plus security, plus a reputation, all these things, plus having your basic food. I mean, it's, he's saying Jesus alone. That's true belief. Now, I'm not sure if it was ever considered cool to be following Jesus, maybe before this, if, if that was, a, if that was a, you know, a good thing, if that was a reputable thing. But I definitely know after this sermon, it wasn't cool anymore, if it ever was. <laughs> Jesus was no longer trending, at least in the right direction. <laughs> now, we usually view Jesus' ministry as kind of this carefree and, and this, this fun. Everyone's following him. Everyone's happy. He's meeting all these needs, doing all these miracles. It's got all this life and energy and excitement. But I think this example, this text that we have, even after this sermon, we see that it was very different, at least for this moment that it, it, was, it didn't have the same allure that we might think at times. Many of us have probably thought, you know, if I was walking around in the first century, if I was hanging out with Peter and John and James and everything like that, how would I, would I even doubt about anything? I mean, watching Jesus, watching him do all these miracles, how would I struggle? I'm watching Jesus. I'm seeing his amazing teaching. He's the, he's the best teacher in the world, right? He's, he's dynamic. He's doing all these amazing things. How would I ever doubt? How would I ever struggle? But I think this, this text shows us that we are just like the people. We're just like the disciples when we read later on about, about Peter and Thomas and Judas. When we see them, we see humanity. We see how we doubt, how we struggle, how we fall short. But it is interesting. I mean, this is Jesus. You would be thinking that he would want the numbers to increase, not decrease, you're thinking, this is not very successful, Jesus. This would be like going to a Billy Graham crusade and, and by the time that it ends, there's just 12 people standing there or watching him, hearing him. You're like, that's not what we expected. That's not what our idea of a success. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Shocker. <laughs> Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus wants to see if he is worth the cost. He wants to see if he's worth the cost. Jesus is sifting the people like wheat. 
We have several passages in scripture where it speaks of of people being sifted like wheat. And this is what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, 11 through 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Who's John the Baptist talking about here? Jesus. <laughs> Just making sure you guys are still with me. He's talking about Jesus here. But what is he talking about? What is, I'm not sure many of us have been sifting wheat lately. Maybe probably not professionally or recreationally. I haven't sifted wheat in a while. Um, so what does he mean? Well, a winnowing fork comes from the Greek word patuon, which is a tool similar to a pitchfork that would be used to, so you'd lift the harvested wheat up into the air and uh, into the wind, and the wind would blow away all this lighter chaff. Okay, so it would blow away the lighter chaff, and the edible grains would fall to the threshing floor, which is this big flat surface. And so, and so God is, Jesus is saying, that what God is doing is that he is sifting the people like wheat. He is separating the wheat from the chaff. And one of the ways that that happens is by enduring hardship. What Jesus is doing here, people are leaving. He's turning to the 12. He's saying, are you going to leave as well? That will show who believes that following Jesus is worth the cost. Whether he is truly worth the cost. Now think about, um, I know this is not the right time of the year to be talking about the NFL for people in Colorado, but um, think, about a, think about a Chiefs fan walking into Mile High Stadium. And, it, it, well, I mean, that's actually probably didn't cost that much. So let's think about a Broncos fan walking into Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. That's where it would really cost something, right? You're decked out in your orange and your blue, your face painted, you know, you're in a sea of red and yellow, your team's not that great. Chief's a lot better. You know, you think about, you would have to really, really be a true fan to walk in there and to, to just cheer and scream and, and cheer on the Broncos. That's what, you would really have to be worth it for that. But think about this, spiritually speaking. <laughs> think about this from, uh, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says this from the cost of discipleship. He gives us two terms of, of cheap grace and costly grace. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. This is why Jesus is worth the cost. This is why he is worth the cost because he believed that you and I were worth the cost of being separated from the Father and being reviled, being nailed to a cross. Now, Peter definitely hasn't connected all of these dots yet, but he does start to piece together that Jesus is the only way and at this point that he is worth the cost. Look at verse 68 and 69. Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Suffering and hardship will come in many ways. Being connected to the Lord is the only thing that can truly get you through that hardship. Having a theology of suffering. What we believe about God has to be the lens that we look through when we experience suffering and hardship and tragedy. Being able to wade through the deep waters of life because this world is not our home. Will you have something to stand on when those times come? Earlier in the service, we sang, Blessed be your name. And that song is based off of Job chapter one, where he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that is what Job had to stand on when so much was taken from his life. Is Jesus worth the cost for you? Is he truly great? Will you have something to stand on when tough times come? Will you have something to stand on when you tragically lose a parent? Will you have something to stand on when your job calls for you to, to work 60 to 70 hours a week and that means sacrificing time with your brothers and sisters in Christ or coming here on church on Sunday? Will you have something to stand on then to help you make those decisions? Will you have something to stand on when you fail out of college? Will you have something to stand on when you wake up one day and you realize your entire world revolves around getting people to like you? We have something to stand on when you or a loved one struggles with an addiction. Who actually realizes that Jesus is great? That he is the answer to your deepest issue. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the worth the cost. Third and finally, Jesus is our hope and the hope of Colorado Springs. Peter's shining moment in verse 68 highlights our hope. Let's read this one more time. He says, Simon, P Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus, Jesus asked them the question. He says, are you going to go away as well? And then Peter answers Jesus's question with a question, which was a total Jesus move, by the way. <laughs> but it's brilliantly genuine and humble. Peter's saying, what's our, what's our alternative, Jesus? What's our, what's our alternative? Now, the reality is that there were a lot of other alternatives. A bunch of people just left and they chose a lot of other alternatives. And even today in 2019, almost 2020, there are a lot of alternatives to Jesus. You know, we, we think about all the things that we could fill our lives with, things that I've already talked about, thinking about wanting to have some different kind of career and, and, and pursuing, just pouring our lives into our career and just saying, I'm just going to choose that. I'm going to choose, you know, following this path of this career or being, just getting as much money as I can or acquiring all this stuff or going on adventure. That's what a lot of people in Colorado, just, I'm just going to climb a mountain every single weekend. I'm going to do all these different things. We choose all kinds of alternatives. And sometimes we try to have this mixed bag of things. We'll say, well, I'm not going to forsake Jesus. I want, I want a little bit of Jesus. Um, I want a, maybe just a few of these, like a little bit of Buddhism, some of these, you know, good, happy feeling thoughts. I'm going to have a little bit of Confucius. I'll add in some Fox News or CNN. I'll put it in a blender and there's my worldview. 
but that doesn't fix what is broken. Peter knows all the alternatives are empty. He knows that all these alternatives are empty. They might be safer, they might be more prosperous, enjoyable, they might be more popular, but ultimately empty. Jesus is not just the answer to our minor issues like seeking achievement and pleasure and acceptance, but Jesus is the answer to our deepest issue. Now, what is our deepest issue? Why do we need hope? Think about Romans 3.23, a verse that many of you in this room probably know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a sin problem. And that has broken our relationship with God. And even for those of us in this room who are in Christ, we keep running back to all these little G gods. We keep running back to all these idols and all these things of our former life. Even think about our city. Our city is broken because it's filled with people like you and I where we are sinful and we run after all these things, but there's many in our city that don't know the Lord that don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. And the people in our city have a lot of the same issues that we have. We struggle with self-righteousness, idolizing recreation, idolizing our family, trying to live our best lives now, being self-sufficient, having an us-them mentality. These things are not okay, but sometimes we, get, we don't really mind them. There once was a little boy who was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. <laughs> we, th- we might not have prayed that prayer before, but we think like that sometimes. If you could make me better, that would be good. But if not, I'm okay. I'm not that bad. And we think like that. So what's Jesus' answer to our deepest issue, to our broken relationship with him and the issues of our city? His answer is the grace of the cross. Two passages here from the Apostle Paul to, um, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mark talked about this verse last week, last Sunday as the great exchange is what it's known as. Christ taking and putting on our filthy and sinful and stinky robe. And freely giving us his perfect and spotless, beautiful robe of righteousness. This is the gospel. This is our hope and the hope of Colorado Springs. This is the beauty of the incarnation that we celebrated last week. Because trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the only way that we can be right before a holy God. There is no joy in the incarnation without the crucifixion and the resurrection. We have a resurrection hope. This is why we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. But it's not that he's just come, but he has died and he has risen and he is coming again. 
Jesus is the answer to your deepest issue of being separated from him. And some of you in this room have never truly accepted that, accepted the grace of the cross. Maybe today is that day. Others of you in this room have accepted that, but you still find yourself just overwhelmed by your struggles and your doubts and running back to these idols or just trying to long for all these things in this world to satisfy that ultimately won't. Many of you in this room are still just finding yourself there day in and day out. And maybe today is a beautiful day of repentance and of remembrance. And others of you in this room are just hurting so bad that you can barely breathe. We just look up here for a second. Jesus sees you and he knows you and he loves you and he has never left you for one moment and he cares about you and he risked everything for you. He was forsaken. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was reviled. He was spit upon and he was alone on the cross because of how much he loves you. This is how much the Lord Jesus loves us. There may have been, there may not be much hope in this broken world, but there is hope in Jesus Christ. As Peter says, Jesus is the Holy One of God and we don't come to this hope on our own. We aren't left to our own grit or determination. Jesus said to his disciples before he left that I will never leave you. I'm with you always. And he later sent his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And now we have God living in us in the Holy Spirit. This is our hope, our encouragement, our comfort, our peace, our strength during all of our hard days and our months and years. This is also the hope of our great city. You're not being sent out into this city with your own knowledge and morality and persuasiveness or righteousness, but you have the third person of the, tr of the Trinity dwelling inside of you, the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Is that we go out into the city with courage and with boldness. Next year, Village 7, this next, just starting in 2020, our church, Village 7, is going to have a city emphasis because we want to see our city change. We want to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. So as we finish up 2019, and we've been praying kingdom-centered prayers, we wanted to see God's reign made visible in our hearts, in our church, in our city, in our world. May we in 2020 open up our eyes to our great city. So how can you engage? Where has God placed you in this city? There is great need. There are people who have physical needs that we can meet, but we want to follow Jesus' example because he would always meet physical needs in order to point to the spiritual need. And that's what we want to do here in Colorado Springs. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is worth the cost Jesus is our hope and the hope of Colorado Springs. May we respond in faith and proclaim the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that he is our bread of life, that we need him every single day. We need him like we need food every day. I pray that that would sink into our hearts this morning, that we would see that you, Lord Jesus, are worth the cost of following. You're worth the cost of, 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 being, of being marginalized at times, of feeling different, of being called names, of standing out. You are worth the cost, Lord Jesus. You are our hope. You are a peace. And I pray that those truths would settle so deeply into our hearts that it would spill out of us wherever we go in Colorado Springs this year. Or for those that aren't from Colorado Springs and all these different cities, that your gospel would, would pour out of us, that your character would pour out of us, Lord Jesus, so that many may know who you are Many would come to faith in you. Many would see the beauty of the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.